Our Father, we again were we're reminded by you, of course, and by the Holy Spirit who dwells within, that uh, we have everything to be thankful for because you're working all things together for our good. That's an overwhelming statement of truth. Couldn't be true apart from the uh, redemptive plan that you set into place even in eternity past that had even your elect children uh, in focus even then. And, uh, Father, that you could make such promises even before we were anything but uh, just uh, in your mind. But you indeed not only knew us, but you knew your entire plan even from before the foundation of the world. So, Father, thank you that you have the power to accomplish every detail of salvation whether for us today, whether for the nation of Israel, for Gentiles in far places through the years, whatever the group is, Father, uh, your elect will be drawn by truth and will be saved. And we have such confidence in that. Father, I thank you that you've gathered us this morning in the sound of the gospel and of the, uh, the glories that are our Lord Jesus having raised him from the dead uh, at the appointed time. Even every enemy could not prevent that. Even Satan himself had no power. And in fact, his willing servants, his slaves, Satan's slaves, uh, gave our Lord over to be crucified. And they wouldn't have done it if they had known. If they had known what they were thereby accomplishing, which was eternal salvation. So, Father, I just uh, thank you so much for that. Praise your name. And may we be well aware today as we open your word what the essence of that preaching is that uh, draws sinners to yourself in saving faith, that we might not be confused, that we may also may not be ineffective in our outreach and our ministry. So, Father, thank you for gathering us this morning. And though our nation is in a time of great turmoil, and uh, we're even willing to use the word darkness regarding it, perhaps not accurately, times have surely been in the past. Uh, history of mankind uh, much darker than they are today. Uh, and yet, Father, uh, for us, uh, it's very dark indeed around us, and we hear the lies of the enemy every place we turn, except on the tongues of some, Father, that you've drawn to yourself in saving faith. So, Father, we rejoice in that. Thank you for each one gathered here today uh, with testimonies that uh, we love to hear. Uh, Father, I I pray for the needs of the heart. There are many. I just pray for so many who are still lacking a hope that's eternal. But indeed, there are many. And we we know some, Father, that you brought into our midst that we might speak with them. But there are so many, Father, that still need to hear this precious truth. And I pray that they would. From our lips, um, if that should be your will, Heavenly Father. And maybe at these gatherings, maybe at the gatherings today, Father, that many will have. Uh, may those that know you be bold for you and yet sensitive, yet um, personal in their confessions of our risen Savior and in the difference that has made for them personally. Father, we know it's through testimony that you reach out to others. And I pray that when we speak, we would speak words of life, but words that are words of testimony, our own indeed. So, Father, uh, so many blessings are upon us. We pray for our nation and its leaders that we might have true peace and safety for a bit longer and not be cast into the grip of Satan as he seeks to destroy that, to replace it with a false 
peace and a false safety that can never satisfy. And uh, Father, I pray that those leaders in our nation who stood on the side of evil would turn uh, to you, Father, and grasp on to your truth concerning your will for mankind, uh, that we not, might not be captured by the lies of the enemy, but delivered by the precious message of salvation through our Lord Jesus. So please lead, uh, lead, lead and guide and raise up, Father, those that will be bold for you today and in these days in which we live. Please bless us now as we open your word together and in Christ's name, amen. Okay, praise God. Well, this is Resurrection Sunday, and as it's worked out, today we have opportunity to open God's Word again as part of our continuing study here in uh, what, what I've called the Great Transition, the glorious sweep of God's abundant grace. We're in Part 8 now. Part 8 is a, <laughs> a number this, that speaks of completion. And uh, today we will look into how the Lord worked on one particular day. It happened to be, one could say, Resurrection Saturday. <laughs> In a city, a Gentile city named Antioch. But not the Antioch you're already familiar with there. We learned about that Antioch last time. This is a different Antioch, Antioch of Pisidia. I'll say something about it in a moment. But uh, you remember from last time, I hope, a lot. I can't take time today to review that with you. If I did, we wouldn't have time to look at what's critical for today's message. So... We'll assume that you remember much from the past, and I'll only read one scripture that we read last time. <clears throat> and this is in uh, Acts chapter 12, verses 24 and 25. But the word of God grew and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. In other words, John Mark. Um, what has happened is that uh, Saul, after his great success, or so he thought, <laughs> boy, was he wrong, but after his great success in delivering Stephen over to be stoned to death, he goes off to one of the great cities of the day. In fact, uh, it was in the largest city, uh, apart from three others that were larger at that time. Even larger, it seems, uh, than, uh, well, I won't even mention these other cities. You know the leading uh, cities of the time. But Antioch uh, was a great city, indeed, great commercial center. And uh, Saul was on his way to Antioch when the Lord God, uh, our risen Christ, uh, intersected with his life there on the road to Damascus. Um, there were miracles performed that uh, others learned of in due time. Uh, Paul, well, Saul, and not yet named Paul. He'll be named Paul in the chapter we look at today. But... Uh, uh, <clears throat> miracles that uh, were were uh, seen or known by others. And uh, even Peter would eventually be convinced that Saul had been called out by God uh, to do a great, great work. Even Peter was finally convinced. And even Peter was finally convinced also that Gentiles would now in great numbers be saved. And he saw that demonstrated through miracles there with Cornelius, the uh, the Roman uh, military commander. Uh, Cornelius and his family saved and miracles, of course, visible there, um, convincing these Jews as to the great work of God. 
Well, <clears throat> Saul would go forth uh, on a very short little journey and would then return to Jerusalem with Barnabas. And uh, then they would, after a short time there, uh, go off again to Antioch. And that's where we find them today as we open chapter 13 of the book of Acts. Chapter 13, Paul's first missionary journey begins. And <clears throat> there are eight parts. First of all, sent forth. <laughs> Paul and Barnabas are sent forth from Antioch into Gentile land. Secondly, blinded or enlightened. A Jew is blinded, but a Gentile receives his sight. Thirdly, the invitation is delivered. Paul is invited to preach in the synagogue. Fourthly, some foundational truth is taught. Paul lays the foundation of the gospel. Fifthly, he is risen. Paul preaches Christ's glorious resurrection. Then salvation is offered. Paul preaches redemption through the risen Christ. Then their response goes down in history. The rulers of the synagogue reject their risen Messiah. And finally, the judgment is proclaimed. Paul preaches judgment against the Jews and turns to the Gentiles. Now, there's a lot there. That's a long chapter. Most of it will really just skip over. I wish we had time to look carefully at it, but we don't. But the major themes are what I hope you will see today as clearly as some did on that Sabbath day in Antioch of Pisidia, in the synagogue there where Saul and Barnabas had come on their first missionary journey. Okay, first of all, uh, to introduce this, it's an amazing thing that happens. Acts chapter 13, I'll read a couple of verses. Verse 2. And this is all about Barnabas and certain other ones uh, in the church in Antioch. They've arrived from Jerusalem and they're now ministering there to believers in Antioch. And this is uh, what we read in Acts chapter 13, verse 2. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. So they fast and pray, lay, lay their hands on them, and sent them away. Verse 4. So they, meaning Barnabas and Saul, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, by the Holy Spirit, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. This is amazing, isn't it? The Holy Spirit is speaking, <laughs> and the Holy Spirit is giving commands, and the Holy Spirit is sending forth uh, these two. Uh, we'll find out in chapter 14. He's sending them forth as apostles. Hmm. It's very notable. Uh, <clears throat> there are other places where the Spirit speaks too, but not many. So this is very significant circumstance indeed here that the Holy Spirit takes control and sends forth these two uh, on what we know as the first missionary journey. Okay, so Paul and Barnabas are sent out. They surely knew it, at least Luke did, who's writing this history. Um, he knew it, no doubt, because Paul told him, right? How could he have known it otherwise? Okay, so um, that's where we stand here with the opening of chapter 13. They were sent forth, Paul and Barnabas, into Gentile lands. Now the next section, I wish we had time for us all to read it together. We really don't. Uh, it's very important, but I'm going to mostly skip it. 
because of our lack of time. But what happens is that um, Paul and Barnabas are preaching the word in the synagogues. So they're going to the Jew first. They go into the synagogues in Gentile towns and cities. And uh, they're going across the island of Crete in this fashion. And as they do that, they come to a city named Paphos. And they found there a Jew uh, in the synagogue, it seems. And what it says here in 13 and 6 is that this man, he's a Jew, but he's also a sorcerer and a false prophet. His name is Bar-Jesus, very strangely. That means in Aramaic, the son of Jesus. Well, there was another man also there in the city. And somehow he heard about uh, the preaching of these gentlemen. And he calls and asks for Barnabas and Saul to come to him to preach to him, it says in verse 7, the word of God. Okay? Well, the sorcerer, interferes and tries to prevent this Roman, it seems, or at least this uh, uh, ruler of the area, he tries to prevent him from hearing anything that uh, Saul and uh, Barnabas would, would share with him concerning the word of God, tries to prevent it. And uh, he must have been right there, face-to-face, interfering, because it says Saul, verse 9, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him, this is on the false teacher, uh, and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? Behold, now the hand of the Lord is upon thee. Thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. But then there's the blessed verse 12. Then the deputy named Sergius Paulus. Interesting, huh? Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. So a Jew named Bar-Jesus is blinded. He's a false teacher of the worst kind, right? And a Gentile named Sergius Paulus, he sees spiritually for the first time. The Jew is blinded, not only physically, certainly spiritually, right? And the the Gentile now sees, it says. Uh, And it says when he saw this he believed being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Okay, so that's how this develops. It seems to me, and to many other commentators, of course, too, that uh, this is kind of a sign in a sense. Uh, it's certainly an indicator as what's to follow, right? Are the Jews really going to be blinded? And the Gentiles will see? Well, this will turn out now to be the theme of the rest of the book of Acts. Paul will go synagogue to synagogue on three different missionary journeys, and probably a fourth that's not recorded much here in Scripture, going first into the synagogues and then to the Gentiles, leaving the synagogues because, for the most part, the rulers of the synagogues, the Jews, the teachers there, will not receive the word of the Lord, and uh, the Gentiles who hear will. So that will be the theme of the rest of the book of Acts. I'll kind of hinted at there uh, in uh, the beginning of chapter 13. Okay, well, we go on. Uh, We'll go start in in verse 13 now. It says uh, that uh, Paul and his company are now They've loosed from Paphos, that's for a certain, that means they've gotten on a ship, 
okay? And they've traveled to Perga, a seaport, uh, over in what's now called Turkey. And uh, John had a conflict with Paul and left, uh, returned to Jerusalem, it says there. But it says when they came to Perga, they then uh, left and they went to Antioch. Now, let me say this. Uh, it's very interesting, uh, but we can't really learn that much from history, but it is interesting to look at history, which records that uh, Perga was a city uh, on the, the sea, and Antioch was far, far inland, but it was on a Roman trade route. And in fact, it's quite incredible, the old Roman road to Antioch still exists. <laughs> it's hard to travel it. The stones, the paving stones are not so smooth now. They're kind of up ended at an angle or a little uneven, but you can walk on it. And that ancient Roman road uh, goes through the hills and, and mountains and comes to Antioch eventually. Uh, it was a trade route, and perhaps that's why the Jews migrated there and established their their lives uh, in um, Antioch of Pisidia. So Paul and Barnabas now come into the synagogue on what's going to turn out to be a very important Sabbath day, and they sat down. Now, in the synagogues, the scriptures are read from scrolls, and it says here specifically it's the law and the prophets that are being read there, verse 15. Um, and after the reading, and they don't read the whole thing, they just read selected portions, right? From the law, from Moses' law, and selected prophecies, right? <clears throat> uh, when they finish the readings, then there's an offer made, there's an invitation to anyone in the congregation who would like to speak. They're allowed to come forth and speak to the group. And so it says here, um, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto uh, them, meaning these visitors, uh, Saul and uh, Barnabas, and said, Ye men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Well, they didn't know what they were now going to get, I am sure. So Paul stands forth. It says in verse 16, Paul stood up and beckoned with his hand. Imagine him calling them forth with his palm. Please listen up. Ye men of Israel and ye that fear God, give audience. And he begins now in very short form. It's form I think it's only uh, about, uh, I forget, a few verses, five or six. He gives the whole history of Israel. Uh, in just those few verses, that's not his main point, but he does highlight a number of things here that you should uh, look at carefully on your own just to see all that he says. His focus is on David, very much so, but also on Abraham and then on the prophets. So really what... what uh, what Saul does is to uh, give a little history, just quickly talking about bondage in Egypt, how they were delivered, and uh, so forth. And uh, he summarizes their whole history in just a couple of verses. In fact, uh, 1,400 years of history are summarized in uh, uh, nearly a space between two words. <laughs> but... Uh, <clears throat> Interestingly, his focus is very positive. He doesn't highlight <clears throat> Israel's rebellion and God's judgment of the nation. What he highlights are things that relate directly to the message of redemption, which he will preach to them, right? So Paul, in very simple terms, uh, reaches out here to these Jews and to the assembled Gentile converts, the proselytes to Judaism, who also gathered in the kind of the side room there, the back room uh, of the synagogue. Uh, <clears throat> interestingly, Paul does not mention Moses until he reaches sort of the culminating point. Now, in their readings, they would have focused mainly on Moses. 
Moses is the foundation of salvation as far as they were concerned, okay? And when they read the prophets, they would have been twisting and turning because if they read the prophets carefully, they would be reading about judgment for those that would not receive Messiah, right? God would ultimately provide to his people, right? <clears throat> so that's uh, that's what Paul has there. Uh, he has ears listening. Some of them are itching ears, and some are perhaps opened by God. And uh, he gives, gives that quick history, and then he gets down to uh, this critical point here, and I'll just read two verses there, beginning in verse 24, where what Paul is going to do now is lay foundational truth. In fact, what he's laying is the foundation of the gospel. And it is, in fact, the foundation of the gospel of the grace of God, as you'll see, too. Um, and what do we read there? Acts chapter 13, verse 24. When John had first preached before his coming, this is John the baptizer, Paul has skipped all the way down. <laughs> and now, when John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he, but behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to lose. That's uh, three and a half years plus a couple of years in the Pentecostal period, right? And that brings us to chapter 13, the verses I'd like read today by Linda. So, Linda, would you please read for us now as Paul gets to the heart of the message there in Acts chapter 13, verses 26 to 29. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of the salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the sepulchre. Thank you, Linda. So Paul preaches on Israel's recent history now, referring to John preaching in the wilderness only for a moment, and then immediately he mentions Christ's death at Israel's hand. And uh, so the context is clear. Paul is blaming there the rulers of Israel, for he said they knew not God nor the word of the prophets. And so they fulfilled the scripture in condemning their own Messiah to the death of the cross, though they found no cause of death in him. They delivered him over to the Romans to be crucified, and they buried him. Uh, the Romans buried him. Once that he had died that cruel death, giving over, which they didn't know, <laughs> giving over his life, for their sins and for the sins of the world, right? So there you have the foundation of the gospel. Christ is given over, uh, he's sacrificed, and he dies. <clears throat> uh, it doesn't say there, but it will shortly here as we go ahead, uh, that when he died, he died for their sins and brought about eternal redemption through that death, okay? So what we see here are the two initial foundational points of the gospel referred to in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4. You, you see that detail by Paul in his letter to the Corinthians. Okay, But these two by themselves are not enough. Everything rests on what happens next. And so Paul then adds these words that were so very, very necessary. And those words are, but God. <laughs> Verse 30, but God. Ah, Satan had it all worked out, right? And finally destroyed not only Jews, hoping to destroy them all, but he surely failed with that down through the years. But now 
he's directly brought about an attack against their Messiah, who is, in fact, the seed of the woman promised from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right? And he's been given over and crucified. Okay, so Satan seemingly succeeded in completely canceling out the whole redemptive purpose of God, of course. What Satan didn't know, and which nobody knew at the time, was that God had uh, worked out <laughs> his redemptive plan so profoundly uh, through that various death and that burial, and now his glorious resurrection. So Paul writes in verse 30, what does Paul write in verse 30 and 31, 2, 3, and 4? And please read it for us. But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I give you and the sure mercies of David. Oh, thank you, Anne. Thank you, Anne, so much. Well, here we are gathered together today, and, you know, for some of us, beautiful sunshine, for others, perhaps not, but uh, hearing these words and and knowing the Lord and uh, being as people, we're well aware of the truth of the gospel, right? And uh, so for us, there's nothing new there in preaching that Christ is risen, but for these, think about who's listening to this. They're listening, not knowing anything about this, okay? Uh, they they may not even know that Jesus has been crucified and buried, right? Surely don't know that he's been raised gloriously from the dead. Or if they'd heard it, they certainly haven't received it, right? And so what Paul is doing here is speaking to their hearts out of the very scriptures which they were supposed to know. After all, why were they in the synagogue on the Sabbath day? It was to hear the scriptures read, right? Uh, that was the purpose of that meeting. And uh, what Paul has done here is to basically say, yeah, those that knew the scriptures, they thought, in fact, didn't know them, uh, and therefore delivered their own Messiah up uh, to be crucified, right? What about you who are listening here, you who are of the dispersion? What about the rulers of the synagogue there in Antioch of Pisidia? What about these Gentiles there who have been gathered together thinking that somehow there's salvation through Moses' law and the keeping of it? And that surely is what they believe. The Jews today still believe this, right? Um and so what Paul is preaching to them should cut them to the heart. Notice what he, he does. He goes to the Psalms. Surely they would know the Psalms. After all, Jewish men had learned by rote. They had memorized so much of the scripture. But had they memorized the second Psalm? Uh, that's a good question, right? Paul goes right to the second Psalm where it says, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, right? This is a psalm of David. And, um, <laughs> and then he says, And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Now he's going to go on and do that by going to two other places, but primarily to the 16th psalm. We'll get to that in a moment. But here he says, I will give you the sure mercies of David. What are the sure mercies of David? And how did that relate to the second psalm? These are very good questions. 
I hope you go to scripture to study this out. Take my notes where I go into this in some detail uh, later and uh, especially go to that place that Paul is referring to. It's an incredible place. And I'd like Gail to read it for us. Imagine being there that day believing that you could be saved through Moses' law and uh, uh, living up to all the requirements of that, right? And hearing this man, this day, preach these words from Isaiah, uh, and especially that verse um, there that he's, uh, he's referring to concerning the, sheer, the mercies of uh, of David there in Isaiah 55, 3. So, uh, Gail, Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 6. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and a commander to the people. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God, and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. Seek ye the Lord while ye may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Well, I am truly amazed as I read this chapter because it's clear that Paul, I mean, you might say, what a complicated message he's giving to these people who don't even, they probably don't even know these scriptures because when they read in the synagogue, they skip over these scriptures, right? And here's Paul now quoting from the Psalms and the prophets, right? Uh, and what is he quoting? Scriptures that point a finger directly at Israel's Messiah, whom has been given over to death, right? by Israel's leaders, right? So the big question is, for these rulers of this synagogue, what will their response be? Will they rebel as so many of their brethren have over the years, or would they receive gladly this precious truth, right? And there are lessons for us here. I'd like to just mention one of them. Paul is going to scripture, his witness to them it's through scripture, not even scripture they've ever seen before, perhaps, right? And we think when we witness that we can't use scripture because people won't know it and they'll be offended by it or whatever, when really the power of the word is used by God to remove the blindness that's on the hearts. And that's exactly what's happening here. Unfortunately, not for these rulers, but for others, as we shall see, who've also heard the same words. It's a lesson for us, isn't it? Trust in the Lord. Let him remove the blindness as you effectively use his word in your witness and testimony with others. Okay, well, that brings us to the next few verses here. Um, Acts chapter 13. Patty, would you read Acts 13 verses 35 through 37. Now, these are the two psalms uh, that he goes to next. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. Okay, thank you. Well, so what Paul is doing here, he's going to a couple of Psalms, mostly Psalm 16. And uh, it's all about David. Well, remember, these who are there in the synagogue that day, they look to David as their leader, right? And to Moses, right? But David and Moses are in the tomb, right? They're in the grave. They suffered corruption. So when David speaks these words of 
truth, he's really speaking about the one to come. Remember, he was a type of Messiah yet to come, a type of our Lord Jesus, right? And uh, so he's writing about him, the one to come, right? And uh, and so what what Paul is doing, he's allowing the Holy Spirit, of course, he's very open and he expects the Holy Spirit to lay the scripture to some hearts because it's all about uh, Israel's Messiah, right? He saw no corruption. In other words, he wasn't in the grave still like they were. He was gloriously raised from the dead. Okay. And uh, so that's what uh, we read in Psalm 16. If you go there and and you'll see uh, the rest of the words, please look there later in the notes where I've recorded these things for your benefit. Okay, the fact that David's tomb was still occupied, but David had spoke these blessed things, points forward. That's what Paul's message is. And those are the sure mercies of David that Paul is referring to. Not mercies to David, actually. In fact, a more sort of wooden-headed literal translation there isn't about uh, sure mercies of David. It's rather the precious and dependable things of David, namely the things that David spoke forth and prophesied. Those things you may rely upon, those truths cannot fail, and now uh, they've seen fulfillment in the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing could hold him in the tomb. Okay, so he gets then on the basis of that, to a statement which encompasses the whole of the gospel really there, and that's in the next two verses. And uh, Tom, you have the pleasure of reading those two verses, Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things, which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Amen. And I want to add one thing. I, if Christ has risen, doesn't that mean he's the Savior? I mean, I, clearly, there is no other, right? <laughs> there is none other. He's the first fruit of them that slept, right? And gloriously was raised from the dead, never to die again, okay? And so he is our glorious Savior. And when we minister to others and hope to be a witness and a blessing to them, what Satan wants is for us not to mention the resurrection of Christ. And often we don't, I'm sad to say, it's true for me, and I'm sure it's true for you, too. I had a, a professor in seminary who said when he was at Dallas Seminary, the great teacher there at the time, Louis Berry Schaefer, would send them out to witness. And uh, then when they came back, he would ask them, uh, well, how did the witness go? Right. And they would mostly go down to Skid Row in Dallas and uh, <laughs> So when they came back and said, this is how it went, uh, he'd say, well, tell me what you what you shared. And they would tell him what they shared. And inevitably, they would leave out the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, an object lesson for you. It's so easy to leave out uh, what's absolutely critical. So there's blessed divine logic in the gospel. And Paul doesn't even go to great lengths in explaining it, it seems. He allows the Holy Spirit just to lay on the hearts of sinners their need of salvation, right? Their realization of sin and their lost condition. Uh, and uh, allowing the Holy Spirit then to to reveal this, the really the essence of the gospel. What does he say here? Through this man is preached unto you 
the forgiveness of sins. There you are. When Christ died, he didn't die for his own sins, but for all, all of ours, right? And so by him, all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Justification is a declaration of righteousness. The law could never justify. All it could do was condemn because every uh, one of Adam's seed uh, was born in sin and could not keep God's holy law. Okay, and therefore the law condemned. But through this man is preached the forgiveness of sins. Think of it this way. Christ died. He didn't die for his own sins. He died for the sins of the world, right? He died for our sins. He died for the sins of all, right? When he was gloriously raised from the dead, that was the proof that he had paid the penalty. Otherwise, he would still be bearing the burden and penalty of all of our sins in the tomb and so forth and so on, right? So when he was gloriously raised, the whole sending of God's son forth into this sin-cursed world was justified because he had now sacrificed himself for all of our sins and gloriously completed that work of Almighty God. Oh, wow. Then gloriously raised from the dead. So the, the blessed divine logic of the gospel is encapsulated in just these few words here as Saul preaches there, as Paul now preaches there uh, in Antioch of Pisidia. How would they receive Jesus as their savior, as their deliverer? Or were they, will they still look to Moses as their deliverer, right? Oh, my. Now Moses has finally been included, but not in the way that they might have hoped, right? He says quite boldly, no one can be justified by the law of Moses. Okay. Praise God. Well, Paul's words were very carefully chosen. He knew they must be because they're likely to be his last words, right, in the synagogue in Pisidia. And uh, they were nearly his last as we just finish up now today. Let's go ahead and uh, I'll read uh, two verses and then I'll ask Patty to read a few more verses in Acts chapter 13, verses 42 through 45. So I'll read verses 40 and 41, Acts 13. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers, and wonder, and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. Oh, what a message of judgment, right? Okay, Patty, would you read those verses then, 42 through 45? And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them at the next Sabbath. Now, when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul contradicting and blaspheming. Oh, my. <clears throat> okay, so it says the Jews left the synagogue, but the Gentiles asked for more <laughs> from Paul. Um, those Jews being the leaders, okay, they go out uh, and uh, other Jews and many Gentile proselytes follow Paul and Barnabas out and, and uh, are told by Paul and Barnabas, Continue in the grace of God. Not in the synagogue, but out, right? And uh, so there'll be, you might think, uh, another good opportunity there, right? But it's going to be chaos, as we see there in verse 45. The 
Jews on the next Sabbath day see <laughs> the whole city nearly coming together to hear the word of grace preached by Paul, right? And uh, they uh, cause a great conflict and blaspheme, it says here, contradicting Paul. When Paul preached those words, I think he had on his mind a passage of scripture, which uh, I'm going to read, though it'll take a moment or two, but I'm going to read it anyway, because I think it had to be on Paul's mind when he preached those words at that time. Basically, what Paul is doing, setting aside uh, Israel uh, now in a Gentile land, in a synagogue, and he's going to do this as he goes into the synagogues throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Uh, he's going to preach to the Jews. Many will reject his message, and he will preach judgment there, leaving the synagogue, taking the message of grace out to those uh, who will receive it, and they will be increasingly Gentiles. So Isaiah 28, I believe, is on Paul's mind when he preaches there that day and will often be on his mind as he preaches in the synagogues. Isaiah 28.10, precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people, to whom he said, this is the rest wherewith he may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing. Yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was unto them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, ye scornful men that rule this people, which is in Jerusalem or in Gentile lands. Because ye have said, we have made a covenant with death and with hell. We are at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge. And under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God. Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the line and righteousness to the plummet. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters shall overflow the hiding place. And your covenant with death shall be disannulled and your agreement with hell shall not stand when the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then ye shall be trodden down by it. So Paul preaches against the Jews and turns to the Gentiles. And his final words in Acts chapter 13, verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I've set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. So for the Jews, the curse has come upon them. The messengers of God have left and are not speaking to them further, right? Having basically turned them over to the judgment of God. The Gentiles have had their hearts opened by the word of grace and the glorious message of Christ's wonderful salvation, his death for the sins of the world, his burial and his glorious resurrection. It says there, 
uh, in those final words, the word of the Lord was published throughout the whole region. That's verse 49. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came unto Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And that's where we finish today, beloved. Christ is risen. It was Paul's main point so many years ago in the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. Praise God. It's a wonderful thing to know the risen Lord, isn't it? Well, let's be bold in our witness. You see how bold Paul was here. Waiting on the Holy Spirit to write the words on the hearts. And the Spirit wrote the words on the hearts of some and not others. So be it. It will always be so. But praise God for our eternal salvation. Well, enjoy the Lord all. And I hope these words have been a blessing to you. Go to the notes and study. It'll be a blessing again and again. The rest of the story, as it were, is that he is risen. Does anybody else want to share anything? I'll jump in uh, my verses this morning with the Sunrise Bible Study Net uh, said once he was sacrificed once. And I can't help but remember the training I received as a child from the Holy Roman Church about the sacrifice of the mass every oh. day. They're re-killing him. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh. I'm not sure that builds us up, but uh, I, I still regret some of the training I received. Oh. Tom, would you be willing to close us in prayer today? Oh, I certainly should be. <laughs> would you like me to do it now? Yes, please. All right. Uh, please join your hearts. Almighty and Heavenly Father, wonderful are you, glorious are you, merciful, full of love and grace. Father, we cannot comprehend the enormity of your gift in your Son, in whom we have the permission to boldly approach your throne, to worship you, to adore you in your spirit, that our words and thoughts might be acceptable to you. Thank you for this glorious day where we celebrate you gave him life, eternal life, but you also made that possible for us who will believe. Father, we want to echo with the saints gathered about the throne. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Thank you for this good day. Thank you for this good word, this word of truth. Thank you for our Pastor Jim and his family. Thank you for all that are assembled here. Thank you for the blessings you've conspired to lay in our path. Make us mindful, Father, of your handiwork. Keep us tuned to the mighty miracles and blessings that surround us. Father, we thank you for our nation, even though it's in chaos and, and seems to be driven by the evil one. But, but we know that you have sovereignty over this. And... Maybe it's not for our pleasure, but yours. Thank you, Father, that you have protected our missionary servicemen and women, first responders, police. And thank you for enabling those who are willing in the medical community to assist in this uh, virus. Thank you, Father, for um, the many requests that we have in our hearts not spoken. Father, I plead for 
wisdom today in dealing with my family as we gather to celebrate the resurrection that my family at large might might hear uh, graceful words and not just me alone father thank you for laying your healing hand on those that are sick and dying and i think that's all of us but especially those that we have in mind that are suffering right now i thank you father for the mercies in healing you have done so far even even me with the blindness thank you for restoring sight to me and on and on i could go father i really should stay in communication with you forgive me for those times when i'm not uh, i pray all this with so much yet unspoken with great expectation in jesus precious name amen Amen and amen. Well, praise God. Praise God all. And uh, enjoy. And uh, love you all. And uh, hope we all together uh, have a heart of thanksgiving as it should be for our precious risen Savior and all that he's accomplished. <laughs>